I want to do a couple minutes on some books. It's very hard when you have about 75 to 80 titles to pick out a few that uh, you want to recommend, so we try to do a few each time. This book that Bruce talked about last night, The Lives of the Puritans, let me just tell you about it. The set I bought cost about $300, and Cumberland Valley is selling it for $42, and you really ought to avail yourself of it. There are few things more inspiring than Christian biographies. We seem to have a world today full of speakers that for $5,000 will be glad to tell you about their conversion, but the Bible puts the emphasis on those who finish the course. And these are the biographies and bibliographies of about 450 of the great Puritan pastors of the 17th century. It was one printing in 1813 and not since. And so this is a very, very valuable work that will stir the heart and inspire you to a life of greater holiness. Uh, secondly is this book by Ralph Robinson, whom you may not have heard of, but he was a friend and contemporary of Thomas Watson. This is about 700 pages on Colossians 3.11, Christ is all in all. And if you think, how could he possibly say that much? How, how could he possibly say so little about a verse that says Christ is all in all? And he goes through all the ways that Christ is sufficient. And in our day and age, we are being told that Christ is not sufficient. You need all kinds of things plus Christ. This is one that we're very, very excited about and just came out called The Godly Family. We are developing a line of books for the family. This particular book is a compilation of about 16 or 17 sermons and essays by 17th and 18th century preachers who never heard of Spock or Freud. And we have completely retyped them all and done a slight bit of editing for easier readability. But you have men like Samuel Davies, George Whitfield, Philip Doddridge, Arthur Hildersham, a sermon on disciplining children from 1621 that is priceless talking about spanking children. He says, but you will say, if I spank my child, my child will hate me. See, you didn't have to wait for Spock or Freud to come up with that. And then he says, yes, but if you don't spank your child, you prove that you hate him from Scripture. And uh, a wonderful, wonderful book that uh, I highly recommend. And then this thing, this book, which was really the impetus for this theme, The Precious Things of God by Octavius Winslow. You may not have heard of Winslow, but he was the pastor that Spurgeon selected to preach the dedication sermon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. So this was Spurgeon's hero. And uh, Winslow has written a great deal. This is about all the things that are precious about God and the things that God considers precious. And it is a heartwarming book. I would say of this book, as I did of Vincent's book last night, The True Christian's Love, the only thing I can say is it's a warm bath for the soul. And if that is in at all enticing to you, you may want to avail yourself of that. With regard to the two gentlemen who won the contest for coming from the farthest away, their prize is they get a duplicate of Dr. Nicole's tie. Dr. Nicole, will you stand up and show the men what they have won, please? nicest things about these conferences is the quality of the people we get to spend our time with. Well, let's begin. If you'll turn in your Bible to the book of Psalms, the 138th chapter, and we will read the first six verses. Psalm 138, verses 1 through 6. 
I will give thee thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to thee before the gods. I will bow down toward thy holy temple and give thanks to thy name for thy loving kindness and thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word according to all thy name or above all thy name. On the day I call, thou didst answer me. Thou didst make me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to thee, O Lord, when they have heard the words of thy mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Now before I get to the main part of the message, let me point out a couple of things. Please note, first of all, that thanksgiving is the duty of the Christian. That's a word we don't like to hear very much in our day and age, duty. We'd rather talk about rights than responsibilities. You may find it interesting to do a word search in your Bible, and you will not find the word rights in most translations, uh, except in the King James there are conjugal rights, the rights of a man to the body of his wife and vice versa, the rights of the poor, but you do not hear about individual rights. What you do hear about is responsibilities and duty. In fact, my wife chides me that when I get on this particular soapbox, she calls me the Calvinistic Cary Grant because all I talk about is duty, duty, duty. But thanksgiving is the duty of the Christian. And it is not just thanksgiving. If you will notice in verse 1, it is wholehearted thanksgiving. I will give thanks to thee with my whole heart. The second thing is that the main place in which this thanksgiving to take, is to take place is the house of God. I mean, when people say, give me a good reason why I should go to church, and I say, you mean besides the fact that God commands it, it is the fact that that is the main place where our praise and our thanksgiving is to take place. The Puritan David Clarkson wrote a sermon entitled, Public Worship is to be Preferred Over Private. I believe the book table has the works of David Clarkson down at the book table. And the third thing is, the two main reasons for this thanksgiving are in verse 2. The loving kindness of God, which is his mercy and his grace, and the truth of God. What is it that we're to be thankful for? Primarily, it is because of God's character and his conduct. None of us wants to be loved for what we've done primarily. We would like to be loved and appreciated for who we are. And the same is true of God. We have a tendency to love him and thank him and worship him to the extent that he does all the things we think he ought to do. But God is to be praised and loved and worshipped and honored simply on the basis of his character. And I quoted last night in a prayer from, uh, in my prayer, a phrase from Jonathan Edwards in his wonderful sermon, The Justice of uh, God and the Damnation of Sinners, which you'd wonder how that could be wonderful, but it is. Edwards rationally comes to the conclusion that our obligation to love, honor, and obey any being is in direct proportion to that being's loveliness, honor, and authority. And since God is of infinite loveliness, infinite honor, and infinite authority, our obligation to love, honor, and obey him is infinite. And it is based on his character, not on his activity. And so we are to thank God for his loving kindness and for his truth. Now, before we look specifically at the beauty of God's Word, I'd like to look at one other thing, and that is the greatness of the Word. The greatness of the Word. 
and that in several things. First of all, and I think I have one, two, three, five of these, if you want to keep track. The first is the absolute power of the word. The absolute power of the word. Isaiah 55:11 says this, My word shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Now this verse is so packed with power, promise, and hope that we could spend the rest of our time right here. There's no question here that God is ordained, what God has ordained will come to pass in, because it is his word. There is also no question that we have just been freed up in all of our evangelizing activities to realize that our job is to be faithful, God's job is to be successful. And that you have been successful in evangelism when you have spoken the truth, not when someone has made a decision. We are to speak the truth. We are to speak the truth and God is to get the results he wants. And you say, well, I have been unsuccessful in evangelism. Did you speak the truth of the gospel? Yes. Then you have been successful. Well, they didn't make a decision. You have been successful because the gospel does not always soften hearts. Sometimes it hardens hearts. And sometimes that is what it is meant to do. So as soon as you have spoken the truth of God's word, you have immediately been successful. As far as you are concerned. You see, God's job is to be successful. Results are his business. He did not say, I will say to you, well done, thou good and successful servant. He said, I will say to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so we must be true to the word. And let me add this, we must not only be true to the word, but true to God's methods. Just because it works does not make it right. One of the main principles of the New Testament is, do not do evil that good may come. God has not only ordained the ends, but God has ordained the means, and we must stick to those means and methods. If you become pragmatic, you must deal with some kind of hermeneutical and exegetical integrity with the fact that God told Moses to speak to the rock and get water. Moses struck the rock. He got water. Moses never entered the promised land because of his arrogance. God's methods are the ones that we must use. And the written word here is no less absolute in its power than the spoken word of God. It is all the word of God. Today, if someone says, God spoke to me, we give that precedence over what God has said in his word. Now, today, the great interpreter of scripture is each individual's experience or each individual's subjective interpretation. There is only one meaning of scripture, my friends, but there are many applications, right? I mean, it doesn't make any difference for someone to say, well, here's what that means to me. I mean, all due respect, but who cares? Now, if you say, here is how I'm going to apply that in my life, yes, that's an individual thing. But if you think about what Romeo and Juliet means, doesn't it mean what it, mean to, what it meant to William Shakespeare, the man who wrote it? So we see the absolute power of the word. Secondly, I want us to see the certain power of the word. The certain power of the word, and that is in Isaiah 48, excuse me, 40, verse 5. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now what comes before that is he says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Sounds like quite a declaration. How does he know that's going to come true? And then comes these words. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's just no question about it. 
You see, if God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. There isn't any question in God's mind. I don't know why there'd be any question in ours. When God speaks, it is certain. There are no chance, there is no chance whatsoever. And I hate to use the word chance. There is no chance whatsoever that what God has said will come to pass will not come to pass. And at exactly the moment he said it's going to come to pass. Third, the eternal power of the word. The eternal power of the word. Isaiah 48, the word of our God stands forever. It stands forever. There are a lot of people who cast, tried to cast dispersion on God's word or give it false interpretations. They all have one thing in common. They're all dead. And most of their writings have died with them. But the word of our God stands forever. Fourthly, the creative power of the word, and this has a lot to do with the certain power of the word. Remember in Genesis 1, verses 3 to 11, when God is creating, God said, let there be light, and the light said, I'm not sure. I've got a free will, I'd like to think about this. Let's have a committee meeting with the rest of the molecules and see if we really want to come together in that fashion or not. But who do you think you are, God or something? No, God said, let there be light. And what was the immediate result? There was light. God said, let there be light, and it was so. And you read through that passage in Genesis 1, 3 to 11, and you see that God said, let there be this, and there was that. And let the waves do this, and there was that. And God said to the waves in Job, thus far shall you come, and no farther. And the waves come that far, and they never go any farther. And when God speaks, that's exactly what's going to happen. Because all of nature obeys his call. In fact, the only people that don't are you and I. The only thing God ever created that disobeys him is the one thing that is the object of his affection. Now, is that love or what? What was true of creation in the world is true of the regenerative power of the word in human hearts. God creates life where there is no life. God takes a hardened sinner and he says, let there be faith. And it is so. We are begotten, Peter says, by the living and abiding Word of God. That's why any evangelistic effort that tries to distance itself from God's Word is an exercise in futility. Because the power is in the Word. The power is in the message, not the messenger. And that is why Jonathan Edwards could read his sermons from a three-by-five card that he actually couldn't read, but he'd memorize them. And people, he used no tone of voice or inflection or any such thing as that. He never could have gotten through any of our seminaries today, and people used to scream and cry out for mercy because the power is in the Word. And fifthly, I'd like us to see the powerful identity of the Word. The powerful identity of the Word. Listen to Revelation 19.13, speaking of Christ. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The Word of God. Christ is the living Word. Scripture is the written Word. Preaching is the spoken Word. But it is all the Word of God when it is faithful to God's Word. We talk a great deal about Revelation these days. I don't mean the book of Revelation. People having visions. Sometimes they run to the incomprehensible. One dentist in California wrote a book about how he died, went to heaven, and saw the guitars of the Beatles in a special room. 
And he had a message from God that said, I gave these boys this music and it will be used to further my kingdom. John Lennon said, imagine there's no heaven. And yet his guitar is there. Now the amazing thing is, anymore, you can be for anything you want to be, no matter how bizarre. You can believe there are nine members of the Trinity. You can believe God will kill you if you don't get this building raised. You can believe any bizarre thing you want and propagate it as much as you want. But if you happen to tell somebody that's not true, you're wrong. You're a legalist, you're a fundamentalist, you're judgmental, and you're unloving. Isn't that right, Mark? All you have to do to say is somebody, you're wrong. And the next thing that comes in is, you're judgmental. By the way, can we put this to rest once and for all about we're not to judge? The scripture says we are to judge with righteous judgments. When somebody says to you, well, judge not that you be not judged, they're going to have to take that into account with the scripture teaching that we are to judge with righteous judgments. Well, you've got at least one bullet in your gun to fire back. Make sure it's a righteous judgment, by the way, not a personal preference. But when we talk about revelation, my friends, God has shown more of himself in his word than in any other way. This is God's self-revelation. He has placed a higher esteem on his word than he has on his name. Please let me read again from verse 2. Thou hast magnified or exalted thy name. In the New American Standard, they have according to, but the Hebrew word is al, and it it literally means above. He has exalted his word above his name. God places a higher esteem on his word than he does on his name. Now think of this. Jesus' first petition in the Lord's Prayer was that the name of God be hallowed and sanctified. Now if the name of God is to be hallowed and sanctified and set apart, how much more than the word of God? Because God has exalted his word above his name. In Psalm 8 verse 1 we read this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is thy name in all the earth. But there is more majesty and splendor in the word of God than in the creation of the heavens. In Psalm 148, verse 13, we are told, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His glory is above heaven and earth. And we sing songs about the name of Jesus. And we get very emotional about the name of Jesus. And there is glory and majesty and splendor in the name of Jesus. And people are casting out demons in the name of Jesus. But God has exalted His word above His name. His word is more exalted and shows more of his glory than all of heaven and earth. You know, very interesting, I would think with most of us, if we were in the workplace and someone were to dishonor God's name or misuse God's name, we would be very offended. I imagine most of you, if you hear someone use profanity and hear someone take the Lord's name in vain verbally or some such thing as that, you'd be greatly offended, you'd ask them not to do that. Let me ask you this question, why are we not even more offended when someone dishonors his word? Why do we not say to someone, you are dishonoring the word of God? Would you please not do that in my presence? And people do that in a myriad of ways. For example, they dishonor his word when they deny the truths of scripture. They dishonor his word when they bring scandal on the name of Christianity. They dishonor his word when their conduct is contrary to that word. 
even more when they use the word of God to justify their sinful lifestyles. For example, Titus 2, verses 1 through 5, gives us a list of things that women are to do. People wouldn't like to hear this list anymore. Scripture tells us that Paul writes to Titus and he says, Tell women to love their children, to love their husbands, and to stay home. Now, if you tried to preach that today, you'd not only be run out of town, but you'd be shot in the back while you were trying to escape. But Paul says that's what the Scripture says. In fact, Paul writes the Scripture that says it. They are to be keepers at home. And the word means a domestic. I don't care if you like it or not, that's what the word means. And then he gives one reason for this. And it's one overriding reason that supersedes all others. He says that the word of God may not be dishonored. And he immediately takes this out of the context, friends, of self-fulfillment, self-achievement, or a personal sense of des- or desire of having something better to do with your life. He says that women are to do this, that the word of God is not dishonored. That overrides every other consideration that you want to throw at the issue. It doesn't matter about my personal sense of fulfillment. It doesn't matter ultimately about your self-esteem. It doesn't matter ultimately whether you feel good about yourself or not. One thing, one passion is that the Word of God is not dishonored, and particularly by me. We've got to have that passion in our lives. The Word of God may not be, may be dishonored in this world, but with God's help and with every last ounce of energy I've got, I am going to see to, to it that it is not dishonored by me. Now, we're going to fail at that every single day, you realize, but it won't be for lack of strife. After all, did Jesus not say, if a man would follow me, and as my friend Mark Elfstrand has said, that is what it means to be a Christian, to follow Christ. Did he not say that it would be involved, what would be involved would be self-denial? My good friend Ben Patterson was my dorm counselor in college. And I remember sitting in his Sunday school class listening to him teach, and he said every day we ought to say no to ourselves to something we really want for the sheer sake of the discipline of saying no to us. That's hard for me to say that when you look at me and I can't button this coat. But that's convicting. Well, I can, but it won't stay buttoned. But that's a hermeneutical problem. I do want to say that because I read that place where Paul says, I buffet my body. And then Dr. Gerstner explained to me that that's not how you do that. You see, proper interpretation is everything. One of the most sobering passages of Scripture for me is 2 Samuel 12:14. The prophet Nathan confronts David with his sin with Bathsheba. And here are his words. Nathan says this, David, By this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Wouldn't you hate to have that said about you? Wouldn't you hate to be confronted by your pastor or a Christian friend who cared enough about you to confront you and say, my friend, by that deed, you have given the enemies of Christ cause to blaspheme. And by the way, if you don't like this idea of confrontation in the Bible, the same Jesus who said, love one another, the second most often used one another in the New Testament is rebuke one another. Exhort one another, excuse me, exhort one another. 
If you think that you're commanded to love one another, you're also commanded to exhort one another, to confront one another. If we don't treat God's word with honor, we will give his enemies occasion to blaspheme. Well, now let's look at the beauty of the word. We've seen the greatness of the word, and now the beauty of the word. Scripture is replete with verses and declarations of the preciousness and beauty of God's word, and most of those are found in the Psalms. Just listen to a few of them. It would take all of our, we could simply stand up here and read the book of Psalms, which may be more profitable than listening to me pontificate. Psalm 19.10, speaking about God's words, they are more desirable than gold. In Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O God. Psalm 119.20, my soul is crushed with longing after thine ordinances at all times. Have you ever had the sense that your soul was crushed with a longing after God's ordinances, his word, the sacraments, the means of grace as we call them? That you simply had such a desire for those things that Sunday couldn't get here soon enough? That the other six days of the week were merely an interference between the things that you longed for most, which was to be in the house of God with the people of God, to hear the word of God and to be blessed by God in corporate worship? Psalm 119, verse 35, Make me walk in the path of thy commandments, for I delight in them. We want to get away from God's law. David says, I delight in it. Because as the Puritans said, the law of God is the transcript of God in written form. It is God's character written down for us. So that when God says, do not commit adultery, it is because one of his attributes is faithfulness. And it is a crime for us to act in any other way than that which represents God's character. So we are to be faithful because he is faithful. We are to be perfect because he is perfect. Back two years from now, it is our intent to do our SDG conference on the faithfulness of God. Psalm 119, verse 47, I delight in the commandments which I love. 119.72, the law of thy mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. 119.97, oh, how I love thy law. 119, verse 103, how sweet are thy words to my mouth. 119.127, therefore I love thy commandments above gold. 119.174, I long for thy salvation, O Lord, and thy law is my delight. To delight in the law of God. What a novel concept. Because God's commandments reflect his character and they correspond to the nature of man as God created him. You see, there is a law counterpart here. There is a counterpart between the law of God and the soul and character of man as God created him to be. And we find the greatest expression of our personhood in being obedient to God's law. Not that there's any merit in it. Not that it earns us God's favor, but it is in our best interest to obey God. Because it reflects His character and it gives to us that which He intended to have, a God-likeness. As a friend who here was saying during one of the breaks last night, he says, the thing that this conference is making me think of is if Christ is so beautiful, and as according to 1 John, he says, the greatest thing that can happen to me is to die because when I see Him, I will be like Him. Think of all that God wants to do for us. He says, them that honor me, I will honor. Isn't that the greatest honor you could hope for, is to be honored by God? 
Isn't the greatest thing any of us could hope for is to see him? That's all that you and I can think about if you really love Jesus Christ. It's what Moses said, show me thy face. To see the face of Jesus is all that any of us long for, to see our Savior. And yet there will be something as great as that. It will be that when we see him, we will be like him. That's the blessed hope that we won't have to deal with our sinfulness anymore because it will be gone and what we will be is we will be like Him. Don't you long for the day when you don't have to go to bed and have this long list of things that you're sorry for? Don't you long for the day when you can do what Paul says and cast off this body of sin and you won't have to deal with it anymore because it'll be dead forever and you can spend all your time doing what you really want to do which is praise God with your whole heart? We can all be as charismatic as we really like to be when we're too ashamed to be in public. And nobody's going to care. And me, this staunch old Presbyterian, can go like this and I don't have to worry about what my brothers are going to say. And I can say amen even though I'm not a Baptist anymore. Won't it be great? You see, that's what the Word does. It transforms us. And that's why we're to love God's law and delight in God's law. Now, my friends, since the Word is so precious, one of my favorite passages as relates to this issue of the Word of God is Deuteronomy 32, 46, and 47. Moses is speaking of God's Word and he says this, These are not idle words for you. They are your life. Now, we could end it right there, couldn't we? These aren't just words. This isn't just a mishmash of words. This is your life. You have hung your eternal existence on the veracity and trustworthiness of this book. Does not that make it precious to you? Wouldn't you long, pastors and people, to go back to the days of 1 Samuel 3.1 where it says this, the word of the Lord was precious in those days? The word of the Lord was precious. There are times I have to admit to you when I take this book and I cross my arms around it and I sit in my chair and I just hold it like it was my infant daughter. And I mentioned that to R.C. Sproul. He said that's what Luther used to do. He used to rock himself to sleep hugging his Bible. My friends, your life and mine hang on this book. And if Christ is precious to you, then the words that come from his mouth have got to be equally as precious. And you've got to protect the honor of this book as much as you do the honor of the man who quoted it to you. The man who inspired the writing of it. Not the man, the God, I should say. In this book, The Precious Things of God, Octavius Winslow says, We part the lid of this sacred volume and we listen to God's voice, sometimes in terrific thunder, other times in entrancing music, now in sublime majesty, then gentle as an infant's whisper. God has unfolded more of his moral character, perfections, and glory in his word than in all the beauties, wonders, and sublimities of his creation. End quote. God's word not only reveals his character and his mind to us, it reveals his heart to us. It not only tells us how he thinks, but how he feels about things. And I want you to know this. God says this about his people. In them is all my delight. Did you know you are what delights God as much as is possible? If you are one of His, He takes delight in you. 
Isn't that what the Catechism says? What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But the word enjoy is an interesting word because it also has the other side to it. It means to enjoy and to be enjoyed by. The chief end of man is to glorify God and not only to enjoy Him, but to be enjoyed by Him. That should be our prayer every morning. Father, I hope this day you enjoy me. The Apostle Peter told us that we were to desire the pure milk of the Word, did he not? It's fascinating to see the analogy Scripture gives us for desiring the Word. First Peter 2, it's an infant desiring the mother's breast. Boy, when those kids are hungry, Mom, there's nothing that keeps them from it, is there? And they let you know that if you don't feed them soon, there's going to be all kinds of grief around the house. When was the last time you went to your pastor and not only thanked him for his preaching, but said, I can't wait for the next one? Psalm 42 talks about a deer panting for water after a drought. Psalm 63.3 talks about a thirsty man longing for water. Psalm 84.2 talks about a hungry man wanting meat. I appreciate all of these being in the gastronomical vein. Psalm 119.131 talks about a hot man wanting a drink of cold water. And you know that when you're hot, nothing but a cold drink will do. When you're hungry, you want not broccoli. You want meat. It is not by coincidence God does not refer to this as the asparagus of life. But why should we desire the Word? Why should we pant and long for it as if our lives depended on it? Because our lives do depend on it, that's why. Peter says that everything you want from life, everything pertaining to life and godliness... And he makes the distinction between the spiritual realm and the, and the emotional realm. The physical realm and the inner man. Those, he said everything that you want for your life and godliness comes from the true knowledge of Christ, which presupposes there is a false knowledge. And if your soul isn't being fed by this book, it could be because you're reading and interpreting it wrongly or having that done for you. If Christ is all in all, then Christ is all you need to meet the soul needs. Why do we keep trying to put things to fix the soul when the, man who, when the one who created it is the one who knows how to fix it and feed it? God created the soul. God knows how to nurture the soul. This is a textbook on the nurture of the soul. Let me give you some of the things that the Word of God accomplishes in our lives, and I can't even give you the references because they would be too many and take too long. By it we are born again. By it we are cleansed. By it we are sanctified. By it we come to know ourselves. By it we learn of Christ. By it we are taught. By it our sin is revealed to us. By it we bring forth fruit. By it we are strengthened. By it we are nourished. By it we are comforted. By it we are given joy. You think that's enough to make you read at least two verses before you jump into bed tonight? That's what I used to do. For a lot of us... Reading our Bibles like kind of like brushing your teeth. You can't go to sleep until you've done it. So I used to read that one two-verse psalm every night and figure I'd paid my dues. For some people, it's just reading our daily bread, either in bed or in the bathroom. That's not studying God's Word. John Downing was a 17th century Puritan. He said, As the ministry of the Word is the ordinary means of our new birth and of beginning us in God's spiritual graces... 
whereby we are enabled to move in the duties of a godly life, so it is also the means of spiritual growth. From strength to strength and of increasing God's graces to us from where they are begun. End quote. How does all of this come to us? By the preaching of the word. That's what Paul wrote in Romans 10. If you're going to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved, how are you going to do that? If, in whom, how can they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? Not of whom, but whom? How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How is it that you hear God speaking to you? Through the preacher. That's what Paul says. What is it they are hearing? They're hearing Christ himself. How can a person say he desires God when he has no desire for the word? And it's the word whether it's written or preached. Well, I just appreciate my own devotions a little bit more. I'd rather take Sunday and go sit under a tree and let God speak to me. Spurgeon asked an interesting question. He said, how come it is that so many people make so much out of what God says to them and so little out of what he says to somebody else? And particularly the pastor. Is regular attendance upon the preaching of the word an optional thing? Is it a matter of convenience? I'll get there if I can, or if the Steelers are out of town, or if it's a blacked out game or something like that? No, according to Moses, this is your life. These are precious words from the precious Christ. I'd like to add one more thing here. I've been hearing a good deal lately about venerating Mary. Mary's the mother of Jesus, therefore we ought to worship her. The argument goes something like this. The angel called her blessed, therefore we ought to bless her as well. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 11 for just a moment as we wind this down. Because I think Jesus puts this issue to rest once and for all. Evidently, there was a bit of Mariolatry going on at the beginning. In verse 27, Jesus has just finished preaching. And once again, he had a great crowd reaction. And it came about that while he said these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. Mariolatry. Not to the extent that we hear about it today. Would you please notice the response of Jesus? Yes, and you better worship my mother too. No. What he said ought to settle it for all time. Yes, but more blessed is he who hears the word of God and obeys it. You see what he's saying? Fine. Think highly of my mother. She is my mother. She's to be honored for that reason. Blessed art thou among women, that was said to Mrs. Bickle and to Mary. But Jesus said the person who hears the word of God and obeys it is to be more venerated. The person who has a high esteem for God's word. I'm convinced that all the theology in the world is fine and it's very, very important. Don't denigrate theology. But somewhere in the Appalachians there's Grandma Wiley with her King James Bible and no commentary and all she does is she reads it and she says, I guess if God says it, I better do it. And she'll have treasures in heaven I'm only dreaming about. Is it any wonder, my friends, that when the Apostle John wanted to describe the majesty of Christ in John 1.1, he called him the Word? 
in the beginning. He could have said this was the Son of God. He could have said was the second person of the Trinity. He could have said any of a number of things. He could have called him any of the majestic names that Dr. Nicole mentioned to us last night. And all he said was in the beginning was the Word. And then in John 1.14 he says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word literally means tabernacle. He pitched his tent. Can you imagine? The majesty of heaven, the glory of heaven, became flesh and he pitched his tent with you and I. Content to live among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Now watch this next phrase. Full of grace and truth. Do you remember that from Psalm 138? Do we have cause to bless God for Christ? You see, all the reasons for thanksgiving that were given to us in Psalm 138 too are in Christ. And He not only has grace and truth, He is full of grace and truth. And my friend, you not only have the living Word inside you, but you have all that God thought was important for you to know in His written Word. It is lovely. And it is precious. And we must protect it from those who would defile it with their lives, with their attacks on its veracity, with their damnable interpretations of it. As Moses said in Deuteronomy 32 of God's Word, this is not a vain thing, it is your life. That is true of you as well, my friend. God's Word is no vain thing. It is your life. Protect it as you would your own. Shall we pray? Our Father, give us a high esteem for Scripture. May we protect it. May we defend it. But not only with our words, but with our lives. May the truth of God's Word be foremost in our minds and hearts as we seek to live our lives for it does no good to tell the truths of it and then live as if we didn't believe them. May we see not only that Christ is lovely, but that his mouth is full of sweetness and that his word is precious because it comes from him who is precious. We ask it in Jesus' name.